Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. But the Women's Committee never confined itself to organizing suppers, card parties, and bingos. Instead, it rapidly developed into the Women's Conference, an all-women's forum that dealt with the special problems women faced on the job. Local conferences were held at which women of different divisions met to discuss grievances. District-wide conferences for the same purposes followed, and women delegates proposed solutions which were submitted to the local's grievance committees. In many cases, the special grievances of women workers were dealt with, and the company had to adjust, as we shall see the women's conference played a leading role in forcing Westinghouse to equalize the wages of men and women workers. However, the women's conference never directly challenged the company's policy of setting men's jobs and women's jobs, and the union did not seek to open training to the trades to women so that they could enter skilled jobs. Still, according to Peg Darren, male supremacy was not a severe problem in Local 601. The men well received the women workers. Women organizers commanded the men's respect and were successful in organizing them as well as women. As recording secretary and as the only woman on the executive board, Peg Darren claimed she never felt slighted. In the AFL, women office workers were sub-citizens. Today, they have full citizenship in the CIO. Thus declared Lewis Merrill of the United Office and Professional Workers of America as he described the women's growth in membership from 8,000 at the time of, of its first convention in May 1937 to 451,000 in the summer of 1938. After a year's existence at ACIO International, the UOPWA boasted 77 locals in 26 states and Canada. When the union announced the appointment of Anne Barinhall as executive secretary of its newly formed joint council, the CIO News commented, Miss Barron is said to be the first woman in the country to hold a position of this sort. Under her leadership, the UOPWA opened a union school for women members in New York City. Included in the curriculum were classes such as The Most for Your Money, Marriage and Its Problems, Women in Society Today, and the Role of Women in the American Labor Movement. Largely as a result of CIO organizing drives, there were 800,000 women union members in 1940, a seven-fold increase in six years as contrasted with a tripling of the number of organized males. 
From 1938 to 1940 alone, the number of women unionists increased from 500,000 to 800,000. To be sure, 800,000 was still only a small minority of the 11 million women workers, but 800,000 represented the largest union membership of women workers up to this time in American labor history. In the year before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the U.S. declaration of war against Japan, Germany, and Italy, comparatively few women were hired by defense plants. Even though the war was on in Europe and American defense industries were tooling up, for one thing, there was still a large backlog of unemployed men on which the expanding industries could draw. Moreover, there was a discrimination against women based on traditional prejudices and the belief that they lacked mechanical ability, despite their proven skills in the manufacture of armaments in World War I. During the months before the war, neither the government nor employers paid much attention to the potential of women workers during this period. Defense demands withdrew vital materials from other production areas and temporarily threw women out of jobs all over the country. 11,000 women in the Pennsylvania silk mills and the 16,000 in hosier mills lost their jobs as silk was diverted to war production. Over 301,000 in radio and 41,000 in auto manufacture were thrown out of work. Great emphasis was placed on the theme that work was a woman's patriotic duty, as a typical newspaper advertisement phrased it. Women who have already responded to the call will tell you their job in a war plant gives them a deep sense of satisfaction, that grand feeling that they are doing their full part to help speed up the day of victory. Actually, for most women, the need to maintain a decent standard of living was a more compelling reason to work. The majority of the women in war industries worked to live, to meet rising prices, and in the case of servicemen's wives, to supplement the inadequate government allotment checks. The Women's Bureau study of women workers in 10 war production areas revealed that the vast majority contributed at least 50% of their earnings toward the maintenance of a family group. Before the war, 8,590 female labor was employed in the non-durable good industries, textiles, apparel, leather, food, and paper. With the war, an increasing number worked in the durable goods industries, communication equipment, iron and steel automobile professional, and scientific equipment, rubber products, and weapons under 20 millimeters in size. Women became welders and shipbuilders. They built airplanes. From 1941 to 1945, Rosie the Riveter was a common sight. By the war's end, women had entered virtually every phase of industry and were working in almost all areas of manufacturing. Although the Women's Bureau worked actively for women's interests throughout the war, its influence was dwindling. The Bureau continued to investigate ways to expand the use of women in industry made suggestions on working conditions and community facilities, publicized women's needs and contributions, and serviced requests from women's groups, unions, and government agencies. Yet it placed little role in the actual development of policy, and none at all in its enforcement. A Women's Advisory Committee 
W.A. was appointed by WMC director McNutt in August 1942, but it was only able to send an observer, not a voting member, to the War Management Commission. Suggestions for the recruitment, training, and employment of women brought before the WMC met with either indifference or perfunctory formal acceptance. By 1943, one member of the WMC had resigned in frustration. The others, in an attempted showdown with McNutt, insisted that they be given more power and consideration. McNutt's assurance that he would consult with them frequently turned out to be empty promises. Meanwhile, WMC's operating arm, the U.S. Employment Service, USGS, proved to be poorly equipped for its wartime tasks, among other reasons because it was virtually powerless to compel modification of hiring practices and unable to accelerate rapidly the entrance of women and minority groups into the war industry. Women declared the American Association of University Women's Journal in the fall of 1942 are conspicuous for their absence in important government posts. About the same time, representatives of 13 major women's organizations drafted a statement to McNutt declaring that incorporating the knowledge and contributions of women into policy-making groups has yet been satisfactorily accomplished. On July 6, 1943, the Women's Advisory Committee sent a confidential statement to McNutt detailing its grievances. It unreservedly criticized the WMC's failure to develop an integrated program for recruiting, training, and using women. The report noted that there has been no concerted approach to evaluate and measure successful methods as opposing to those which have failed and insisted that there must be more specific recognition that women constitute the principal non-military manpower resource to meet the requirement of war and supporting war production activities and to maintain an adequate civilian economy. Finally, it severely criticized the committee for ignoring the Women's Advisory Committee. To correct this situation, the women demanded the naming of a liaison personnel in all WMC divisions and the appointment of an executive assistant to oversee the implementation of WAC policies. In August, Executive Director Lawrence Apley responded to the committee's charges promising to seek their advice. He reported, however, the WMC's rejection of the committee's concrete demands. Thus, while women were being mobilized in greater number than ever in industry, they had hardly any influence over manpower policy. At no time, manpower commission give women more than an advisory voice in decision-making, and their advice was usually ignored. Despite the manpower emergency, many employers were reluctant to use women, insisting that women were not the equal of men in factory work, that they did not understand machinery, and that they were not trainable. Finally, employers complained of the added costs of adjusting equipment for use by women, of providing such facilities as separate washrooms. Beginning with a survey of the aircraft industry in early 1941, the Bureau undertook analysis of a number of major war industries to disprove the traditional views about women's industrial aptitudes and abilities. Women, the Bureau was able to establish, could operate milling machines, boring, threading, grinding, and buffing machines, and punch presses. 
Women could also be used as inspectors, welders, sheet metal workers, winders, and optical grinders, and polishers, and in countless other capacities. The War Department, the Civil Service Commission, and especially the War Manpower Commission pushed the case for the employment of women workers in many of what were ordinarily considered men's jobs. The results of these efforts varied by industry and by region. Having already opened their doors to women prior to the United States' entrance into the war, the industries that manufactured ammunition for small arms and artillery increased the hiring of women after Pearl Harbor. Since many of the steps that went into the making of bullets, cartridges, and shells were simple, requiring training not more than a week long, women could be easily utilized. By March 1, 1943, two-fifths of all the factory employees in the industry were women, while on the bagging plant, some processes were taken over entirely by women. Although the aircraft industry was almost entirely male before the war, by May 1943, women constituted 45% of the workers in the West Coast aircraft plants, 33% in the Midwest, and 26% in the East Coast. Making airplanes, Paul McNutt told the press, in the first week of May 1943 was rapidly becoming a women's industry. In many war plants, 70 to 80 percent of the new employees being hired are women, and they are doing nearly all the jobs that used to be considered men's work. W. Gerard Tuttle, Director of Industrial Relations for Valti Aircraft, one of the first aviation plants to hire women, supported McNutty's evaluation, declaring that experience had demonstrated that 80% of operations in that plant could be performed by women without sacrificing efficiency. The women's help is already making it possible to speed up our national defense production through the building of better airplanes in less time than could be done without them, Tuttle added. Mary Robinson went even further, declaring flatly that the spectacular development of aircraft production would have been impossible without the aid of women. The electrical products industry equaled aircraft manufacture in the employment of women and even exceeded it in the ratio of women to men. In 1940, there were 101,201 women, or 27% of the industry. By 1944, there were over 350,000 women, or nearly half of the workforce, in the manufacture of radio and communications equipment. Women constituted three-fifths of the workforce. The nation's shipyards also experienced a female invasion before the war. Only two Navy yards and no private firms had hired women for production. The handful of women in shipbuilding sewed flags and cell lofts. By 1943, women were working in nearly all naval and commercial yards, filling over 200 distinct positions and constituting approximately 15% of the industrial's total labor force. Women were engaged in arc welding and gas welding and in working at the layout of steel plates operating lace, drill presses, punch presses, grinders, and screw machines. They had also proved themselves to be especially good at wiring, soldering, and coil winding in the electrical shops. When the war broke out in Europe in 1939, there were only 36,000 women employed by the railroads. By March 1943, the number had risen to 63,000 women were doing jobs usually performed by men in the offices and shops at ticket windows and information desks in stations and baggage rooms. 
working as cleaners and oilers of engines, as turntable operators, as conductors, and at dressing the track. Still, when it was revealed in November 1942 that the nation's Class I railroads employed only 6,000 women in non-clerical positions, it was noted that this showing was much poorer than that made by the railroads in World War I. A Women's Bureau study showed that women appeared to be replacing men more rapidly at machines than at any other kind of work. Before the war, fewer than one-fourth of the women workers were machine operators, yet half the women substitutes were placed in on machines formerly ran by men. After the machine operators, the most important occupational groups from the standpoint of numbers of jobs formerly performed by men were assemblers and inspectors. One-fourth of the assemblers, inspectors, and service or maintenance workers, about three out of ten storeroom clerks, well over half of the packers and wrappers, and half of the solderers were women. One woman voiced a common complaint to Eleanor Roosevelt when asked, when you ask American women to plan to work for this war, isn't it also necessary that you ask American industrialists to make a place for women of all ages? Another woman expressed the same theme in a letter to Secretary of Labor Perkins. All this talk about jobs for all ages is absurd. There are no more jobs for the older women now than when, eight and a half years ago, I was widowed and started out to look for work. These grievances were caused by the fact that employers set a maximum age for women applicants considerably lower than the maximum set for men. Helen Baker's survey of the defense industries in the fall of 1941 revealed that 30 to 35 was the average maximum age for women applicants. Despite labor supply problems, Many employers refused to consider women over 40 for jobs. In a study of 1944 census data, the Women's Bureau discovered that over three-fourths of the women in the labor force were under 45 years of age, and that of the 6.5 million who had entered the labor force after Pearl Harbor, over 8,090 were under 45. Because of their generally lower family income, in 1940, Blacks were gainfully employed at a ratio of 1 to 5. More than 142 million black women above the age of 14 years were employed in that year. But 70% of these women were in service categories and a large number were involved in agriculture. Randolph's call for a march on Washington struck an immediate response in the black community. By the end of May 1941, March on Washington committees had opened headquarters in Harlem, in Brooklyn, New York, and in Washington, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, and San Francisco. The Fair Employment Practices Committee was born with the committee functioning with the passage of fair employment laws in a number of states and municipalities with pressure from black organizations and the growing labor shortages. The door slowly began to open for the entrance of black women into industry. During the war period, their employment rose from 1 million to 2.1 million, an increase of 40% compared with a 51% increase for white women. But the change was neither rapid nor easy. 
until 1943, not a single black operator was to be found in the entire Bell Telephone system. Gloria Shepperson, probably the first, was hired in New Jersey that year, and to secure the position, she had to fight an anti-discrimination case. The first breakthrough in black female hiring in Detroit did not come until the end of 1942, notes Ellen Clive, when a vigorous campaign by black protest organizations, token numbers of black women began to work at Willow Run, Kelsey Hayes, and Marie Body. The situation in the still industry was worse. In 1943, 19-year-old Frances Stanton, in order to support herself and her infant daughter while her husband served in the armed forces, asked for employment at the Clarkston Steelworks in Pennsylvania. While the plant was hiring white women every day in the week, it totally ignored her employment inquiry. Women, regardless of race, faced a variety of discriminatory practices. Industry upgraded and promoted them much more slowly than men, and throughout the war, they continued to be clustered in the least skilled. Once they were able to secure jobs in the industry, black women were assigned to the dirtiest and most difficult assignments. The physically exacting position of grinder in a steel mill was reserved for black women. Black women eventually constituted between 35 and 75 percent of the workforce in certain small Detroit plants. But a study made after Detroit's major race riot in June 1943 revealed that only 3 percent of the women employed in defense work were Negro. And those were mainly in custodial positions. In the small Detroit plants, too, Black women remained concentrated in such low-wage positions as janitors, sweepers, and material handlers. On October 9, 1940, Congress approved a supplemental training appropriation that required that no trainee under the foregoing appropriation shall be discriminated against because of sex, race, or color. Nevertheless, the Office of Education, which supervised industrial training, well, industry was hiring men, so training should be confined to them. Not until February 1942 was the policy of restricting training to men revised. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. Music